I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the small letter of 3rd John. 3rd John, that's a tiny book in your New Testament. It's almost at the very end, so you can easily find it if you go to the very back of your New Testament. You'll see the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And then if you just, uh, just before that, you'll see a one-page, uh, another small letter, Jude. And then just before that, you'll see this uh, tiny letter, that is 3 John. So just go to the back. Now, parents, uh, if you've not already done so, now is the time for children's uh, church to begin. So you'll want to set your children up on their devices so that they can benefit from that. Now, as you've turned to the book of 3 John, you may notice that I didn't specify a particular chapter there. And that reason is probably obvious because if you found it, you see that the entire book is but 14 verses. So it's small enough that it's not divided into chapters. And today we're taking a break from our series in the book of Revelation called God Wins so that we can focus on something related to Mother's Day. We'll return to the book of Revelation next Sunday. So parents, and not just mothers, mom and dad, let me ask you, what do you want most for your children? Now, try to answer that question honestly. Perhaps it'll be easier to answer it honestly to yourself because you're not sitting in the church building where, let's be honest, we often feel like every answer and every thought needs to be the right one, even if it's not the real one. But what do you really want for your children? If a friend asks you this coming week, how are your children doing, what would be your immediate response? For most of us, if we're honest, it would be that they're healthy and they're doing well at school or in sports or in their careers. If they're married, then we might say they have a nice family and the grandkids are so very cute. Now these are all, of course, very good things for which we should all be grateful if they describe our children's circumstances. And we'll see that kind of thing actually mentioned in our passage, in fact. But note my first question again. What do you want most for your children? There are many good things that are good for us to want, but there's one thing that's to be desired above all the rest, and that's found in verse 4 of 3 John. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, many of you who are quite familiar with your Bibles know that this passage, when it speaks of children, is not talking about biological children. When verse 4 speaks of my children, the people to whom it refers are not the writer's physical children. Rather, as we'll see, they are his spiritual children for reasons that I'll explain in a bit. So please don't tune me out because you think the pastor isn't even aware of the context and meaning of the passage. It's true, as we'll see, that this small letter is not written to the writer's family, but he uses the metaphor of family relationship. And what he sees as important for his spiritual children is indeed instructive for those of us who have been entrusted with biological children. And it also has a wider application for all of us in God's church, whether we have children of our own or not. Because since the church is God's family, the truth is 
we all have children. The children who are in the household of God, the church. So let's bow before the Lord. Let's ask Him to help us as we look at His Word on this Mother's Day. Father, we thank You again this week that we are able to gather in this virtual format. We desire and we long to be able to be together physically. But in the meantime, we thank You for allowing us this medium. And I thank You for those that are gathered with me now, with Your Word in front of us, so that we can be instructed. Help us to remember that it's Your Word. Help us to treat it accordingly. Then with open hearts, with attentive minds, to be hearers and be quick to hear what the Lord God says to us about our roles as fathers and mothers and mentors in the lives of the next generation. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, 3 John is the shortest book in the entire Bible. It only has 14 verses. Now, 2 John has only 13, but it actually in those 13 verses has more words than in the 14 of 3 John. So you're looking at the shortest book in Scripture. The relationship of the one who wrote this letter, who we'll identify in just a bit, but his relationship to those about whom he speaks in this letter as children, that relationship you begin to see in the very first verse that starts with, notice verse 1, the elder. Now, when you can just refer to yourself as the elder, if that's sufficient to identify who you are, then you are obviously someone who's well-known. An elder in the Bible is a title for pastors in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, quote, Elders direct the affairs of the church. And that title elder is used interchangeably in the Bible with pastors. So pastors are elders, elders are pastors. They are two titles for the same office. And 2 John begins exactly the same way. So 3 John begins, verse 1, the elder. If you were to turn just one page or just look to the left in your Bible, at 2 John and verse 1, it begins the same way, the elder. And you also see there in verse 1 that 2 John is addressed to, quote, the lady chosen by God. Now, the lady chosen by God is a reference to a church. The church is called the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 says in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And if you look at the very last verse in 2 John, verse 13, you see, it says, the children of your sister who is chosen by God. Send their greetings. And so, this is a church chosen by God, according to verse 1. And then the people of your sister church, chosen by God, send their greetings to you. So it's saying that one church with whom this elder slash pastor is associated sends greetings to one of his other churches. And so the one who wrote this is a special kind of elder because he was not directing the affairs of just one church, but he was involved in the affairs of more than one. 
The family relationship between churches is why you've heard me refer to other churches uh, that we affiliate with as sister churches. So the elder is writing to a church in 2 John, and the members of the church are referred to as children in a family, and in this case, the family of God. In verse 4 of 2 John, again now 2 John, verse 4, he says, It has given me great joy to find some of your children, members of the church, that is, walking in the truth. But the members of the church are not only children of God's household in general, the elder, this pastor, sees them as his own children in a sense. Because 2 John 4 that I just read says, it brings me joy that your children are walking in the truth. But now our passage in 3 John, 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. And so he considers these, in a sense, his children. And that's because he probably was responsible for the existence of the church. Because as a church planter, he did what we see Paul doing in the book of Acts in your New Testament, planting churches in various cities. So the members of these churches for whom he's responsible are his spiritual children in the sense that he is their spiritual parent. Many of them had come to Christ and grown in Christ through his ministry, and he thought of them, therefore, as his own spiritual children. The Apostle Paul writes this way, about those that God used him to bring to himself and nurture in the faith. He speaks of his protege Timothy, for example, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22. He says, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. The elder then is a leader in the church, but not just a leader in one church, but over more than one because he's also an apostle. In particular, he is the Apostle John. Now, how do we know, since the writer does not actually give us his name, in either 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John, these three letters that he wrote? Well, the books are named for John because the language in them is very much like the fourth book in your New Testament, the Gospel of John. And these four books, the Gospel of John, and then these three letters, 1, 2, 3 John, are certainly written by the same author. And John wrote a fifth book in your New Testament, the one that we've been studying and we'll pick up again next week, the book of Revelation. John was one of Jesus' original 12 followers, and those 12 were given special authority to establish the church after Jesus was raised and ascended. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles' and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. When one of the apostles then would remain in a particular location for a lengthy period of time, serving in a local church, his apostleship shaded into eldership. We see this with the apostle Peter, who said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So he's an apostle, but he's also in this particular locale, and as he is, because he is an apostle, 
he shades into serving as an elder in the church as well. It appears the similar kind of thing is happening with the Apostle John. The apostles spread out in various parts of the Roman Empire. They preached the gospel. They saw people come to Christ. They organized them into churches. And they often met in the homes of individual members. Paul writes in the book of Romans, the very last chapter, chapter 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. And to a friend of Paul's, Philemon, he said in verse 2 of Philemon, Dear friend and fellow worker, I greet you and the church that meets in your home. So they spread throughout the empire, but whenever the church went forth, unfortunately, error was not far behind. Second John is written to warn against taking in false teachers, and Third John is written to encourage hospitality to godly teachers. So you have these house churches, and you would have people who would come, itinerant preachers, and some of them were false, some of them were true. And so they had to be warned about the false, but also encouraged to welcome the true. And 2 John is written to a church, while 3 John is written to a leader in a church, a man named Gaius, who we don't need to take time for our purposes to deal with, but it's written to one of the leaders in the church. And what's interesting now for our purposes is that in the first 11 words of this letter in 3 John, the word love is used three times in the first 11 words. We want to see what the Apostle John now tells us about love and apply that to the family relationships, both in our homes but in the wider household of God as well. So I say in the outline, the outline that Hopefully you have in front of you, there's a button at the bottom of your media player for the outline. You click on that, you'll see it on your screen. Many of you already have it printed out as you've been doing each week. And I say, first of all, in that outline, that love is doing. Love is doing. Because the word used in 3 John is the word for God's love. It's the Greek word agape. Now, the New Testament was first written in the Greek language, later translated into English, and Greek had several different words to explain the concept of love. Two of those are used uh, in the New Testament. Sometimes these terms were used interchangeably. Sometimes they were used in ways that highlighted various aspects of love. So one of those Greek words, other than agape, is philos. That refers to brotherly love or relational love. So Philadelphia, philos is relational love, delphos means brother, and so Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Another Greek word for love was eros. We get erotic from it, it refers to romantic love. This particular word is not used in the New Testament. But the most common New Testament word for love is the one used by John over and over, agape. It was often used in certain contexts to communicate the basic nature of true, legitimate love. And it was the foundation for all other types of love. For a relationship or a romance to be legitimately called love, it must share the characteristics of agape. So what are those? What are those characteristics of God's love? Well, the Bible teaches that God's love is primarily an act of the will, not primarily 
an emotion. It's primarily an act of the will. Feelings are changeable from one day to the next. And so when love is defined in terms of feelings, then love itself becomes changeable. Now certainly love affects the emotions, as I will point out a bit later, but the two should not be confused. Biblical love is not merely a feeling, but it's a choice, an act of the will, an act of the volition. And so in Hosea chapter 14 and verse 4, the Lord says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. I will freely choose to place my love upon them even though they are wayward, even though there's nothing that would evoke feeling about them. In their waywardness, I will choose to do so. So love is primarily an act of the will, not primarily emotion. It's also sacrificial. God's love is sacrificial. Our version of love tends to be selfish. It's preoccupied with receiving rather than giving. But true godly love requires giving, sacrificing oneself for the benefit of another. And the supreme example of the self-sacrificial nature of genuine love is God's gift of His Son for our salvation. And that's why the most famous verse, most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16, written by the same John, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This same John wrote the letter of 1 John, and in 1 John 3.16, so there's the Gospel of John 3.16, that most well-known verse, but there's 1 John 3.16, and again, there he's speaking about love, and he says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, I and other preachers emphasize this volitional nature of love, that it's an act of the will, that it involves doing. And we do that first because the Bible teaches it. But we emphasize it because our culture contradicts that. But in doing that, we all always have to hasten to add that love is not to be devoid of feelings. In fact, what we call the love chapter in the New Testament 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verses, passages out of that chapter are often read at weddings because the entire chapter is about love. It's called the, the love chapter. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, it certainly teaches that merely doing is not love. It says this in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all I possess to the poor, now, if we stop there, if love is merely doing, then my giving to the poor would in itself be sufficient for love. But it says, if I give all I possess to the poor, but do not have love, I gain nothing. In other words, simply doing, simply giving, is not equated with love. John Piper has a famous illustration of the need for affection in love when he says this, Suppose I buy my wife a bundle of roses for our anniversary or, fellas, for Mother's Day. He says they cost $200, give or take. And I hold this huge bundle of roses behind my back, and instead of walking in my front door, I ring the doorbell, which is unusual. My wife comes to the door, and she looks puzzled, and I say, Happy anniversary, Noel. 
And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you go to such expense? And suppose I said, it's my duty. I read it in a book. That's what husbands do. That wouldn't fly, would it? There's not just the act, there's not just the doing, but there's also the affection for the person for whom we are doing it. So love is more than feeling, but it's not less than feeling. And we should strive to have affection for the objects of our love. And when it's missing, then we should keep doing as we ask God to grant us that affection. And at the end of verse 1, the elder says, I'm writing to you, Gaius, quote, whom I love in the truth. So you might jot down that truth provides the definition of love. Love must be defined by truth. And God's Word does that for us, and 3 John does that for us. So love is doing, and secondly in your outline, love is doing what is in the interest of another. Love is doing what's in the interest of another. Verse 2, dear friends, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Greek word that's translated good health is the word from which we get our word hygiene. Luke, in the Bible, who was a doctor, who was a physician, many of you know, uses this word to refer to those who are fit and well, safe and sound. It refers to physical well-being. But notice, it's good physical health like your good spiritual health. It's written in a way that assumes and prioritizes spiritual health. I hope you're as healthy physically as you are spiritually. That's what he's saying. Now, it's the other way around for us. We have the wrong priority. Usually, we will say, I hope you're well physically and I hope you're doing well spiritually. But no, the priority is spiritually and I hope you're doing as well physically as you are even as you are healthy spiritually. The Bible teaches that bodily exercise profits little when compared to godliness, when compared to spiritual maturity. So love desires and seeks to supply what is in the interest of another, both physical and spiritual. This then tells us what we will do since love is doing. Namely, we'll do what helps physically and spiritually. Love in the truth, truthful love then, tells me what I will do. And I will do what's physically good for those that I'm called to love. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11 and verse 11, Luke 11, 11, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, you'll give him a scorpion? You know how to give good gifts to your children. So we want to give what our children need, even what they want from time to time. And this is good, and it's right, because it keeps us from being stingy or harsh. We want good things for them, good physical things for them, good material things for them. But they need more than food and clothing and shelter. They need spiritual training. They need discipline. 
And so the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The word that's translated training is the word for discipline. It's instruction with teeth in it. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches that those who truly love their children as God loves His children will indeed exercise discipline. Verse 11 of Hebrews 12, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So truthful love dictates both what I will do, but also what I will not do. I will not indulge sin. And in fact, I'll engage in discipline in order to move the one I love onto the right path. So the Bible says things like this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. You see, friends, a lot of us believe that love means just continually giving and giving the material needs, giving the physical needs to our children. But we have to teach our children to use their God-given ability to work and to earn their own bread as they, as they grow. Many a parent has made the mistake of continuing to indulge their child even into their adult years. The Bible says we ought not do that. Do not share in the sins of others, 1 Timothy 5, 22. So truthful love, love that is in the truth, love that is defined by the truth, keeps us, yes, from being harsh and stingy, but it also keeps us from being permissive. And so you could jot down here that truth provides not only the definition of love, but the parameters of love. How love is expressed, how far it goes, and when it does something and when it doesn't do something. Because it's all about the interests of the one that we are loving. It's right for us to provide for our children's well-being and pray that they'll be well physically and that things will generally go well with them. It's good for us to pray for and endeavor toward those things. But there's something, friends, far greater. Because yes, love is doing and love is doing what is in the interest of another. But I say thirdly in your outline, love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So there are things that are in their interest, physical things, material things. These are good things. But then there's what is in their best interest. Hear this very convicting and eloquent statement from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, as he comments on this passage in 3 John. Now, I warn you, it's a little bit lengthy, uh, but more important, it's, it's very convicting, very poignant. He said, I fear that many, even among professors of religion, could not truly repeat my text. They look for other joy in their children and care little whether they are walking in truth or no. They joy in them if they are healthy in body, but they are not saddened though the leprosy of sin remains upon them. They joy in their comely looks and do not inquire whether they have found favor in the sight of the Lord. Put the girl's feet in silver slippers and many heads of families will never raise the question as to whether she walked the broad or narrow road. It is very grievous to see how some professedly 
Christian parents are satisfied so long as their children display cleverness in learning or sharpness in business, although they show no signs of a renewed nature. If they pass their examinations with credit and promise to be well-fitted for the world's battle, their parents forget that there is a superior conflict involving a higher crown for which the child will need to be fitted by divine grace and armed with the whole armor of God. Alas, if our children lose the crown of life, it will be but a small consolation that they have won the laurels of literature and art. Many who ought to know better think themselves superlatively blessed in their children if they become rich, if they marry well, if they strike out into profitable enterprises in trade, or if they attain eminence in the profession which they have espoused. Their parents will go to their beds rejoicing and awake perfectly satisfied, though their boys are hastening down to hell if they are also making money by the bushel. They have no greater joy than that their children are having their portion in this life and laying up treasure where rust corrupts it. Though neither their sons nor daughters show any signs of the new birth, give no evidence of being rich towards God, manifest no traces of electing love or redeeming grace or the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, yet there are parents who are content with their condition. Hmm. I warned you. Very convicting. I say in your outline that love is doing what is in the best interest of another the best interest of our children, in our families, in in our churches. And I say in the outline, knowing the truth for all people, including our children, is indeed what is best. Knowing the truth is best. That's why the Bible gives to parents, those of us that have been entrusted with children, the responsibility to impress upon them the truth of the Word of God. That's what's best. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You see, friends, these truths, these commandments need to be upon your hearts and then you impress them on your children. But get this, you cannot give what you don't have. You cannot give what you do not know. And that's why the truth must first be in our hearts. Then and only then are we equipped to impress it upon the lives of our children. So knowing the truth for us and then imparting that knowledge to our children is best. But I say in the outline, living the truth is best. Of course, it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to live it. 1 John, another letter from John, 1 John, chapter 2 and verse 5, this is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. When verse 4 of 3 John says that I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth, that word walking is living, I have no greater desire than to see them living out the truth. And so friends, parents, mentors within our spiritual family, the church, none of us should be satisfied ever for somebody to say, I made a profession one day. Thank God for that. That's the beginning. 
But it's not just that the person says, I believe. The question is, are you living what you believe? So truth provides the definition of love. It provides the parameters of love. And here we're saying it provides the goal of love. That those we love would come to know the truth and live the truth. Now this is heady stuff. I'm sure you would agree. It's hard stuff. To hear the words of Spurgeon, I know, is convicting stuff. I want to conclude, though, by emphasizing, friends, as hard as this is, we're in it together. We're in this together, families. We're in this together, mom. We're in this together, dad. We're in this together, members of CBC, of God's church. We're in it together. The number one metaphor in the Bible for the church is a family. That's why we, when we started our church in 2001, we came up with a name. We decided to call it community. We wanted to emphasize that in our slogan then and has been for all these years that we are the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. Because the number one metaphor in the Bible for the church is the family. We who are not family by blood are family by spiritual bond. And therefore, our responsibility to raise the children God has entrusted to our church is a collective one. We are a family of families. That means a bunch of things. It means though this is hard, you don't go it alone. But we support one another in it. We help one another in it. It also means the fact that the family, that family life in the Bible goes beyond the nuclear family in the home means that everyone who's part of the church, whether you have children of your own or not, are part of the family of God and are spiritual parents to the young people in our church. And that's why I've titled this message, you see at the top of the outline, God Parents. We are all God influences upon these children. Parents need to direct their children to God but also each church member as part of God's family is to model godliness before our children to move them forward in their walk with God. So every adult listening to me right now who's part of God's church, and if you're not part of a Bible-believing church, the Bible tells you to be. Those of you that are part of a church like CBC, every adult listening to this has children in the church. And it means, parents, as I've said, we're in this together, that we desire, I trust, to see our children walk in the truth. But sin being what it is, we know that not all will do so, or not all will do so evenly. Some will not at all, at least to this point, though we continue to pray to see them come to the Lord or come back to the Lord. So what do you do then? And what do we do then? If we're really in this together, what do we do when it doesn't go in the direction that we earnestly desire? Friends, tragedy, it's a tragedy when we withdraw, when that's our reaction. But all too often, that's the case. I've seen it over and over and over again. I used to be a youth leader decades ago. I saw it then. I've seen it since then. A child starts to go wayward. It affects the, the parents so that they don't lean into the family of God. They move away. As their child is moving away, they're moving away. 
I don't know all the reasons for that. Some of them maybe we worry about what people will think, forgetting we're in this together. That yes, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We rejoice to see the spiritual progress of our children, but we also weep with those who weep, and we do this together. So we don't move away, we move toward. We should move toward our brothers and sisters for support, acknowledging, yes, my child is struggling, but too often we're embarrassed or angry or jealous, and so we just withdraw. This beautiful unity that should be the family of God as we rear these children for the next, the next generation for God. Satan hates it, and so he fights against it. And it can and does get worse as we see our children pull back from the other children and teenagers perhaps and young adults in the church. And so we look at what's wrong with the other families. Hear this, we might even align with a coalition of the aggrieved, thereby thoroughly further widening the natural but admittedly sinful chasms that can and do develop between children and adults. I'm just going to talk here for a few moments about this. We're almost done. Stay with me. But perhaps you can tell I care deeply about this. I care deeply about my own children, of course. I care deeply about the children of those who have had them entrusted to them in our families and our church. But I care about our church as a whole, how we react to what happens in the lives of our children and how our families and parents react to that. And whether we stay in this together or not, what I've observed over the years is that differences that we, that naturally, sinful naturally, sin nature, militate against this union that we should have, this unity that we should have, those become exacerbated when a child begins to go wayward. Things like school differences. You know, you have a, you have a youth group, you have a children's ministry, and our teen leaders and our children's leaders are always vigilant, have been for all of these years vigilant about not seeing cliques develop because we know that's the natural course. And not develop over school differences. But it can happen if you've got some kids who go to a Christian school, some kids go to a public school, some are homeschooled, and you'll see them gravitate toward each other and perhaps exclude others from their particular circle. That's not the life of the church. That's not what our unity is built upon, which school we go to, but it's a natural and can become a sinful, natural thing to do. And so we combat it. And then there are these spiritual differences that, of course, develop within the church. And a child begins to go wayward, and the parents begin to withdraw. And those differences that you have to, that you have to fight against regularly can become exploited when a child starts to go wayward. And so there becomes a fraternity, if it's boys, a sorority, if it's girls, of the aggrieved, which ironically then becomes its own clique to combat the cliques. <laughs> And then if you add to that, that someone or someones decides to take it upon themselves to widen the chasm further by telling people within one group what that group said about this group, you know what they really think about you, and it further moves people away. I've seen that happen. Not only seen it happen, 
But in God's grace, I've actually been able to, over the years, from time to time, see the parties brought back together and find out that what they were told was said about them turns out not to be true. And you know, all of that could have been solved. All of it. If we just stayed together. If we leaned in rather than moved apart. Some of you listening to me, I have reason to believe, have had that happen to you. God has granted us a wonderful, you hear me say it all the time, a wonderful group of young people. Teenagers who have become young adults who are serving the Lord. Many of them have grown up together in the church and have become part of the church. Just one of the strengths of our church, thanks be to God. But we have had this scenario play out from time to time that I've described. And I have reason to believe that some of you have believed things that you were told people think about you once your child started to go astray. There may have been sin committed, and if there was, there's a way to get it straightened out. But the only way it gets straightened out, the only way the truth comes out, is if you lean in, not move apart. Do that. If you've had that happen to you, do that. Friends, the church is a family of families. It takes a church to build a family and to raise a child. You sometimes hear it said that strong families build strong churches. I believe strong churches build strong families. But there is much that militates against maintaining that unity. Now, I encourage you, young CBC families, to partake, participate in this Wednesday's entrusted parenting and marriage ministry. This Wednesday starts at 7 o'clock. You can register for that, and you need to register for that. You can do so, CBC Connect at 97,000, and you'll be at, get instructions for how to do that. Here's your take-home truth. The highest priority for our children should be for them to know and live for Christ. To know and live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and the priority of truth to define love for us, to create the parameters around how love should be played out as we give that love to those that you bring into our circles of influence. And then, Lord, what the goal of love ultimately is for those that we love to come and know you and to live for you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us these clear instructions. But, oh, Lord, it's one thing to know them. It's quite another to do them. We need the Holy Spirit's power to humble us, to motivate us, to grant us the strength necessary to carry out what you command. Grant that to us, we ask you, in all of our relationships so that we and those we love can bring glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.